been going through the holy history. The theme for this series is found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. It says, these things happened to them as examples for us and were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. All of these events that took place with Israel in the Old Testament are not just history, they're his story. It's God's interaction and intervention in human history. God's plan to bring the whole earth to himself, to bring all the people of the earth to be a part of his kingdom. So have you ever considered or been asked or been in a group where you thought about if you had to lose one of your five senses, which one would it be? I, I mean, I know people right now that don't have a sense of smell anyway, so it's like, eh, who needs that? Okay. Touch. All right. Would anybody choose to lose their sight first? Yeah, probably, probably none of us would, right? Um. However, losing one or more of your senses is, uh, is very challenging, of course. Uh, but it doesn't have to be a complete tragedy. How many of you know the story of Helen Keller? She was blind and deaf and learned how to communicate. And yeah, if she didn't have the sense of touch, she wouldn't have been able to do that. So um, she ended up, you know, we discovered because nobody knew prior to that, that she was a brilliant woman, but she, uh, she had something going for her. She was, uh, she was motivated, um, and, uh, she wanted to learn, but I will say this far, far more tragic than blindness is spiritual blindness. And we find a great deal of spiritual blindness in our world today. Um, I am going to continue our series uh, in the Holy History. In fact, I prepared a message uh, on uh, Samuel for today. But as I was looking at our Wednesday night Bible study um, and what the Lord has been, I don't know, saying to me and hopefully through me on uh, Wednesday out of Second Corinthians, I just really couldn't let this pass by because it's so relevant. It really, really is. It's very, very relevant. Um, the Apostle Paul writes this. This is Second Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the God, the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, if you want a broader perspective on 2 Corinthians, then I would invite you to come Wednesday, or I would invite you to go to uh, the uh, the YouTube channel. Uh, it's LifeWell D, right? LifeWell, this church with the letter of my name on the end of the LifeWell. So youtube.com slash LifeWell D. And you'll see there's a second Corinthians uh, playlist there, and it has all of this teaching. And I'm teaching for about 45 or so minutes now each Wednesday and pretty much going verse by verse. So uh, normally in a teaching context, I would give you more uh, of the uh, the background here, but I want to focus on this verse and I want to apply it directly to our world today because there is more spiritual blindness in the world today than I've seen in a very, very long time. And that's puzzling 
until you understand why that is. So the Apostle Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, he's already talked about how when the old covenant was revealed through Moses, that Moses would come down off the mountain, and after being in the presence of God, his face literally glowed with the glory of God. And he would, they were, they were scared to get near him, but he would deliver the law to them. He would, he would speak to them related to whatever it was that God had uh, said to him. And those of us who went through, I think it was 2018, we went through the entire Bible. Um, it says again and again, and speak to the children of Israel and tell them such. And speak to the children of Israel and tell them such. And so Moses did. He spoke to the children of Israel and told them what the Lord had spoken to him. But then what he would do is he would put a veil over his face. The Apostle Paul says the reason that he put the veil over his face is because he didn't want them to see that the glory that was upon his face was fading away. But then later the Apostle says there is a veil that remains over the hearts of his people, the Jewish people, down to that day. And certainly we see a veil over the hearts of people in our day that is keeping them from understanding the truth, right? It's a veil of confusion. It's a veil of doubt. Now, I will tell you this. Some people think of faith as though it were some sort of uh, some, something that some people have and some people don't. Well, I just don't have a lot of faith. Everybody has a mustard seed of faith. Everybody. Everybody has that little fingernail of faith. It's just a matter of what do you put your faith in? Whom do you trust? That's what it amounts to. And we have all sorts of rationale uh, and, and feelings surrounding why we choose to trust someone, why we choose to believe something. But Faith is not just a feeling, right? Faith is reliance upon something or someone. Faith is confidence in something or someone. It's trust, yes, right? So here, the Apostle Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, the preaching of the truth of Christ, veiled with what? Confusion and doubt. Why? It is veiled to those who are perishing, those who are separated from God and will continue to be eternally separated from God. And we call that hell, perishing. There's another way uh, of saying that. You know, you know Jesus promised in uh, perhaps the most famous verse in the world. And as a testament to the fact of how uh, godless our world is becoming, I bet fewer and fewer people can quote John 3.16. But I bet those of you here and many of you that are watching online can quote it. Can you quote John 3.16? For what? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son or only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, those who are perishing are those who do not believe in the biblical Jesus. Now, I'm saying the biblical Jesus because people are reinventing Jesus right and left in our world, and I'm not going to get into that discussion. But the biblical Jesus, about whom uh, the gospel gives us uh, testimony, this is Jesus who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect life. He never sinned. 
He was tempted in every way just like we are, yet was without sin. That's what the scripture says. And then he was executed under the auspices and the aegis of the religious leadership of his day by the power of the Romans because of our sin. And he died an excruciating death on the cross. And then he was buried in a rich man's tomb. And then on the third day, he rose. And he showed himself to his disciples who became witnesses. Forty days later, he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And there he sits and he waits until the day when he will return. That's basically the gospel. Now, if that just sounds like religious jargon, stories, seems irrelevant, maybe seems dry and boring, you may have a serious problem. You may have a faith problem. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, people who are in the world, people who are lost, people who are going to hell, don't get it. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You choose to believe or not to believe. But if you choose not to believe, you give Satan the opportunity to blind your mind to the truth altogether, and then you are susceptible to believe just about anything. And that's what we see going on in our world. Their minds are blinded to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. We're going to look at that a little more. So the gospel is irrelevant to those who maintain a disposition of disbelief. Now, that disbelief may simply be misdirected belief. It may simply be persistent distractions that are, are buzzing around all the time. Paul has already admitted that the message of the cross, this is in 1 Corinthians, which is at the root of the gospel, is folly. It's foolishness. It's nonsense to those who are perishing. Well, what does he mean, those who are perishing? These are the people who reject Christ, refuse to believe in and love God, and who lean on their own understanding. Man, that's one of the first verses that we teach our karate kids. And you know, hopefully years from now, they'll still remember that. Trust in the Lord with all of your and do not lean on your own but in all your ways, acknowledge him. That means bring him into every situation and he will direct your paths or he will make your paths straight, right? But what happens is we refuse to believe, we refuse to trust, we re refuse to put our confidence in Christ. We rather trust our own understanding about things as though we have some inerrant knowledge about the world and about life. The reality is we have accrued a large number of discrete beliefs about the world. And we assemble those together and we create a worldview. Typically, we're following other people. We may not realize when we were taught certain things, but we're taught certain things. And we have those in our heart and we have those in our mind. So you may come to church here and you hear things and you, yeah, well, I wasn't taught that way, though. 
This is why I'm really trying to plug you into the scripture because however you were taught or whoever taught you, you and I need to unlearn some things and relearn some things. We need to align our minds with the word of God, right? So people, these people lean on their own understanding instead of the revelation of truth obvious in nature. So nature testifies to the glory of God and the existence of God. It's interesting that, you know, we have uh, individuals today who are purported to be experts, scientists, scholars who look at nature and cannot see the fingerprint of God in nature. And yet that is exactly what testifies to the glory of God, the existence of the creator. Um, Our text plainly states that it is the God of this world who is keeping unbelievers. He's not making them unbelievers. Stop. That's not what this is saying. That Satan has somehow got power over people's minds and he's making them not believe. No, they've chosen not to believe. At that fundamental level, They have chosen not to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I don't believe, I'm not talking about believing in the existence of God in the broadest sense. The demons believe in the existence of God, James says, and they're perishing. They're going to hell. They shudder when they think about God. And there are people who use God's name in vain, who would say they believe in the existence of God, but it's irrelevant. What I want to always get back to and get down to with people is, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? I have asked probably hundreds of people that question. It's what Jesus asked his own disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Your assessment needs to align with reality. Jesus Christ is the one and only son of the one true God. Amen? Start with that fundamental reality. When you turn that aside and say, well, I don't know about that. For the first time in my life, and it's getting to be a long life, there are actually people who don't believe that Jesus existed at all. Well, you might as well dismiss all of history then. Because this is one of the, the most well-known figures in history. The Jesus that died on the cross, yeah, that's well-established in, Western, in the Western world. Oh, we know that. It's a basic fact. He rose from the dead. There's plenty of testimony for that, but it requires faith. There's no question. But that he didn't exist at all, that's nonsense. For the first three centuries of the existence of Christianity, people did nothing but suffer for Jesus. Why would you do that? Why in the world? People were thrown to lions. The emperor Nero took Christians and coated them in pitch and lit them on fire to illuminate his garden. That's early. It's early in the, in the Christian faith and Nero is, is in the 60s AD. Oh man, you disband that altogether. If Jesus didn't exist, what are these people doing? And then there are so many miraculous stories surrounding Christ and what what he's done in the lives of those. No, this is nonsense. This is Satan blinding the minds of unbelievers. They chose not to follow Jesus as the son of God. So Satan just takes them to the next place over and says, oh, well, he didn't exist anyway. This is a fairy tale. Wow. We've got a crazy world, friends. 
So the God of this world is keeping unbelievers from responding to the gospel. That doesn't have to be permanent, however, amen? He doesn't have power over their hearts and minds keeping them from believing if they simply choose to stop at that first step and say, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, there are some people that are, we would call them determinists. They may be religious determinists or they may be philosophical determinists, but they believe that the whole story is already written and we're just robots and, you know, uh, we're not even good actors, okay? A good actor is given a script, but then creates a character as the result of that script. And a play that is acted in by different casts will be different on the basis of those people. So even if, and I don't even know that, that, this, that this life is, is uh, written to the degree that we would call it a set play, God does know the end from the beginning. He is arranging circumstances for the good of his people and for his glory. But I believe you have free choice. You are writing your story. And we're improvising some of the time, all right? But it is a story. You're not determined. You're not fated to go to hell. Yeah, I think there are people who believe that. They just, they, you know, there are people that believe that they're fated, they wouldn't use that term, to go to heaven, and so it doesn't really matter what they do. No, it really matters what you do. This is eternity we're talking about. This is eternal life we're talking about. The scripture says this, we already said, uh, we already quoted John 3.16, that uh, God gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes, are you a whoever? Yes. Amen. And then 1 Timothy 1, 4 through 6 says that the Lord desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and human beings, the human being, the man Jesus Christ. And then uh, it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to keep his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Aren't you glad God is patient toward you? Oh, I am. Not wishing any perish, but that all come to repentance. You see, that's the flip side of that faith coin. You're hanging on to something or some things that are keeping you from turning and believing. Pastor Craig was teaching in the Luke Bible study this morning and of Luke chapter 18, and uh, they covered the, uh, the parable of the rich young ruler. Um, this individual is listed in all three synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in one, it says that he's rich, and one that says that he's young, and in another, it says he's a ruler, so we call him the rich young ruler. And uh, he was a good guy, apparently. He said, what, what do I need to do to get to heaven? What do I need to do to, to have uh, eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandments, keep the commandments. You see, the commandments are what convict us of our need for God and our need for his grace. So Jesus is pressing in and saying, this is what you need to do. And the man said, hey, I already do all that. And Jesus said, then one more thing you lack. Here it is. Sell everything you ha have, give the proceeds to the poor, and come follow me. And it says that he went away sad. Why was he sad? Because he had a lot of wealth. He couldn't repent 
because he trusted in his wealth. And that's what Jesus used as the example in that story. He said, this is about people that trust in wealth. They trust in mammon. They trust in this world and the resources of this world. You see, the, the guy was getting everything by giving everything away because he'd be with Jesus. If you have God, you have everything, amen? If you have everything and you don't have God, you're going to lose everything sooner or later. Jesus said it this way. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I'm the king of the world. And then your soul is lost. And so is everything that you think that you have gained. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I love this. If anyone is in Christ, are you in anyone? If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. This is the testimony of all of those who will choose to believe when offered the message of the gospel of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Why do I quote so much scripture in here? Why do I read so much scripture in here? Because faith comes by hearing the word. Faith doesn't come by hearing my anecdotes or watching my antics on stage. It comes as the result of hearing, but you have to exercise. (laughs) So, I'm getting fatter, but I do still go to the gym six days a week. (laughs) That's why I wear all these untucked shirts now. (laughs) But I still go to the gym six days a week, and I really do work out pretty hard. Um, And uh, I watch some people in the gym who are not really working out at all. They're just chatting. It's like, you know, the gym is their place to socialize. I, I, no judgment, but you're not going to get any stronger. You're not going to change. You're not going to meet your goals, lose weight, whatever your goal is, by just, it's like, I need to use that machine, and somebody is sitting here like this. I'm serious. You can do that in your car. You know, I mean, <laughs> but this is the point. You have to exercise. You have faith. You have to exercise that faith. You have a body. You have to exercise that body. You got to do something with it. You can't just sit on your blessed assurance and do nothing and assume that's going to get you into heaven. It's not. I say this often in here. This is a quote by Dallas Willard, the former USC philosophy professor and, and brilliant writer on the Christian faith. Um, he said, uh, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. You don't merit your way into heaven, but my act of worship and gratitude toward God is I expend and extend effort. See, we're constantly waiting for someone to come and change the way we feel. So I was mentioning this to a couple of the worship uh, guys up here this morning, um, but there's a there's a uh, YouTube influencer, I guess that's what they call him. Um, actually, he's kind of all over the place, and I don't know if you've heard of him or not. This is not a Christian guy. I'm just going to mention one thing that he said because uh, I think that it's uh, it's uh, important. Um, his name is Jocko Willink, and uh, he was a Navy SEAL, and he's kind of one of these bull necks, you know, guys, and like he does Brazilian jiu-jitsu and just, you know, <laughs> that guy, okay? And he's got a podcast that's fairly popular as well. 
And uh, he was talking about the difference between motivation and discipline. Now, see, for most of us, I think the idea of motivation is, I've got to feel like it. I don't feel like it today. I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like running. I don't either. I, that's why I never do it. Lige runs all the time, but I bet he doesn't run just because he feels like it. See, Willink said, you don't need motivation, you need discipline. Discipline means I get up and do it regardless of how I feel. Now, there's a lot of hardworking people in this room, and I know that's exactly what you're doing. I would be willing to bet you don't just jump out of bed in the morning saying, oh, yay, I get to go to work today. I love my job. Wouldn't it be great, though, if that were the case, right? Now, I will say this. If you're doing anything that remotely resembles what you're called and created to do, it's much easier to get motivated to do it. There's lots of things that I do as a pastor that if this was a big church, I wouldn't have to do because other people would do them. But then on the other hand, I would have all these other obligations and have to watch over all these other people and have to be some sort of an administrator. And so there's always going to be things you don't like, but I love doing this. What I'm doing right now, this is what I was created for. Nobody has to beat me into this. But honestly, I wasn't sure what I was supposed to preach today because I had written this whole message on Samuel and this idea of the God of this world just kept gnawing on the back of my brain. So I just was going back and forth and back and forth. Is that what I need to do, Lord? Is that what I need to? And so when I was in that middle place, not knowing, I, you know, I'm like, oh, I can let somebody else preach if that's, you know, what needs to happen. But this is what I want to do because this is what I was called and created to do. But there are plenty of things that I don't want to do, I don't like to do, and I just get up and do them anyway. Faith is not a feeling. Why don't you say that? Faith is a decision. It is a commitment. You look at the word of God and you are afforded the opportunity to exercise faith at that point, whether you read it or whether you hear it. And you need to choose to do that because every time you don't, you become blinder. Your heart becomes harder. It becomes more difficult. Actually, difficulty may not even be the way to describe it. It just becomes more irrelevant because you found another way, another way to live life, another way to, to get along in the world. The God of this world, okay? Um, the false God referred to here is who? Who's, who's the God of this world? Yeah, Satan, the devil, right? Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that Satan is over the earth? No, it doesn't. The scripture plainly teaches in Psalms, and Paul reinforces this, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Who owns the earth? The Lord. He's the one that owns the earth. Um, interestingly, the NIV translates this phrase, the God of this age. And if you look at the original language, the word there, is not cosmos, which is world. It is ionos, 
which means the God of this aeon, this eon, this time period, right? So Paul is not saying Satan controls our planet or the cosmos or the universe. Uh, the quote that I gave you a moment ago is from Psalm 24.1, and it is affirmed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.26, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. What the devil controls is the world system. Okay? Um, related ideas. Zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, that is. The dominant cultures among human beings. He maintains his control over this world system via unbelief, or we could say misdirected or misplaced beliefs of human beings. God made humans in his own image, and he gave us dominion over the world. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, right? But through sin, humankind, and thus the world over which we were given dominion, fell away from God. So long as people persist in selfish, prideful rebellion against the creator, they will be manipulated by the evil one. Bob Dylan said it well in his song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. You gotta serve somebody. You gotta serve somebody. That's how he sings. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You do. Most of us serve ourselves. As long as human beings believe Satan's lies, rather than trusting in and submitting to their good and loving creator, the world system will be under the control of the father of lies, who is the enemy of our souls, no matter how much he pretends to be your friend. It was not a charade when Satan offered Jesus the world if he would bow down and worship Satan. Paul also recognizes Satan's power when he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. The prince of the power of the air. That's the old way of saying it, okay? I just uh, read the, uh, the NIV, right, where he's called the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he dethroned the devil. There should be an amen there. He doesn't have to have control over you or yours. He doesn't have to do anything in your life if you let Jesus be on the throne there. Listen to what it says in Colossians 2.15. When he had, that's Jesus, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Wow. For many hundreds of years, Satan control over many nations and cultures in the Western world where faith in Jesus Christ became nearly universal. He was bound this is a concept in Revelation 20, verse 1. I won't get into uh, various interpretive uh, ideas in this regard, but I think Satan was limited. He was bound during this period of roughly a 1,000 years. At the present time, however, it would appear he's loosed again. The dominant culture in the United States was oriented toward Christian faith from its founding until about the, the mid part of the 20th century. Now we see a godless, anti-Christian culture gaining more and more dominance. Satan is certainly the god of this age. 
He's gained control of the world because most human beings have given him control over their souls by rejecting Jesus Christ. We are living in an age of pride and unbelief. No one is immune to deception or able to resist temptation without help. Satan is the father of lies and he rules the world via deceit and temptation. Listen, the big battle is not about Democrat versus Republican, left versus right, okay? This president versus that president. This is, this is all the external charade, okay? There's a spiritual war going on. And you need to tune your mind back to Jesus. It's not about all of these different things. Well, I believe this about LGBT, and I believe this about abortion, and I believe this about illegal aliens. But do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? The Bible's Jesus. Because all of this other stuff clears away and you're able to, to make a straight path, turning neither to the right nor to the left, keeping your eyes straight ahead and following the one who is the pioneer and the perfecter of faith, who is running ahead of us. Push all of the rest of this to the side. It says he's blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them. There's a purpose to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So fundamentally, Satan is playing a game of keep away. He seeks to keep people from seeing who Jesus truly is and from hearing and believing the gospel. His methods are manifold. From a busy schedule to the many entertainments available to us through our buzzing, blinking, beeping devices, the never-ending parade of apps and websites with passwords and logins to maintain, oh my goodness, it drives me up a wall. Every time I've got to write, and I say, two-factor authentication, you've got to log back in. I'm ready to lose my Christianity about every five minutes. You know, I, I brought up, you know, the, the web browser on the computer up there this morning, and uh, it wouldn't let me just log right into my, my uh, YouTube account. It wanted me to, you know, re-enter that, and so I had to go back. I couldn't remember the password, but I've got a password manager. I had to enter that. And then, uh, and then it went two-factor authentication, and you got to do this code, and then click that, and there's so many distractions, right? I'm just giving you some little minor annoyance from, from me, but, you know, minor things can keep you from major things, can't they? Um, worries about money, worries about grades, cognitive dissonance due to a divided heart. Secular artist Dave Matthews has it right. There's just too much. I won't sing that one. Right? But it is. He just says too much, too much, too much, over and over. Listen, folks, we need to serve divorce papers to this godless world. The culture is toxic to faith and healthy living. As the Apostle Paul will make clear uh, later in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, we cannot be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, atheists and anti-theists and those with a form of godliness who deny the power of it have gained control over much of the business, educational, political, and artistic entertainment, and even the religious domains. Time has come for the genuine followers of Christ to separate themselves from all persons and activities that may influence them to deviate from the narrow path. Amen? We really do, friends. And you got to be careful with your kids. They're making more decisions than you realize, even when they're young. But when they hit those teen years, there's a buffer going on there, right? They're, they're making decisions that will harden them into a way of life. 
that will be difficult to deviate from later in life. We've got to continue to love them and preach the gospel. The time has come for us to step out and be the people we've been called and created to be. This begins by putting full faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. For those of us of us who are in Christ, Satan is a defeated foe. He's a, a roaring lion, but he's a toothless lion. He's a paper tiger. He's the original terrorist. He's an intimidator. But see, in the end, if you take your stand against the devil, what does the scripture say? He must flee. Wow. There are a lot of folks that uh, we need to separate ourselves from. We need to love them, but not align with them. The Apostle Paul says this about such people, Philippians 3, 18 and 19. For many walk of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even as I weep, he loved these people. That they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who have their minds on earthly things. The glory of Christ, who's the image of God. Let's, let's end with the beauty of this whole thing. The gospel presents the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. If you want to see God, you look to Christ. As we've observed, God is transcendent. Um, one theologian called him utterly, otherly, absolutely unique, and not like any of us. Yet we're created in his image, and so are in a limited way like him. However, we're fallen, and that image has sustained serious damage. Christ came to provide us with a clear picture of God and a way to be restored. He is the perfect image because he is one with God. So, John chapter 14, upper room, last night of Jesus' earthly life before his death and resurrection. He's talking to the disciples. And one of the disciples, I want to say it was Philip, said, Man, Jesus, he didn't say man, but show us the Father and it will be enough for us. That's so beautiful, right? And this rocks me to my core. Jesus looked straight at him. And he said, have I been with you so long and you have not come to know me? I and the Father are one. The scripture says, and I, I put this in a, in a uh, version of my notes uh, earlier this morning. Um, it's uh, in 1 Timothy 6. I think, ladies, you have this up there. Uh, I think I brought it in. 1 Timothy 6, uh, 4 and 5, or 5 and 6. But it says that God dwells in unapproachable light. He cannot be seen by anyone. It says, God alone is immortal. Human beings are not natively immortal. Your soul will go on beyond the grave if God chooses to sustain it, if God chooses to raise you and bring you into his kingdom. Everyone will be judged. Everyone will pay the price for their sins or their sins will have been paid for by Jesus if they're in Christ, but only God is immortal and he dwells in unapproachable light. I just, I think sometimes we're, we're too trivial with God. We don't understand his transcendence. When I look at the universe, I'm looking at all of these pictures that are coming in from the James Webb telescope. I, I followed them on Twitter and I, they're just, it's breathtaking. 
we're talking about billions of galaxies with trillions of stars, 200 billion trillion stars or something. And we're, we, we believe, those of us that believe in the God of the Bible, believe that the source of all of that is this one God. How dare I mouth off to him? What a fool am I shaking my bony fist at God? I get upset about all the trivialities of life all the time. And I'm, you know, whining, why God, why God, why? Man, I'm blessed that he pays any attention to me at all. This is the God that dwells in unapproachable light. We can't know him naturally in and of ourselves. The only way to know God is through his representative, his son, Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, it says in Hebrews 1.3. He is the image of the invisible God, it says in Colossians 1.5. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, it says in Colossians 2.9. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And again, Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. So what's your opinion of Jesus? Because that's what this all comes down to. Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a figure from your past, your history, your religious upbringing? Is, you know, is he important to you? This is what C.S. Lewis said in his work, Mere Christianity, he said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, says C.S. Lewis. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left, left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is the only way for us to make the changes we need to make in our society, in our families, on our jobs. Follow Jesus. You and I have been created as human beings in the image of God, but that image is broken and it must be restored. Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection provide the way for God's image to be repaired in us. Now, I've uh, left this or shown this to you before, and this picture is up there, ladies. Um, there is a, a form of artwork in Japan called kintsugi or kintsukuroi, and it means to repair with gold as a way of visualizing this. That was a pot that was broken. And when the artist put it back together, he used gold to bring the pieces together. That's your broken life repaired by coming to Jesus.
we have a story to tell. And it's made beautiful by the man who made the ugliest instrument of death in the history of humanity a beautiful thing. We have a huge cross that I gesture to all the time, hanging on the wall behind me. We wear crosses. I have, a, a, you know, Jesus on the cross on this, uh, this Martin Luther ring that I wear all the time. But that was a horrible, ugly, evil death that he's turned into something beautiful. Whatever you're going through, whatever you've gone through, he can bring your life back together, restore the image of God in you, and make you everything that God has always intended you to be. But this is all about Jesus. The cure to spiritual blindness is simple faith in Jesus Christ. And I hope that wherever you are this morning, whether you've gotten away from that faith, whether it's kind of grown shop-worn and old to you, or whether you're at a point where you're ready to restore faith, to rededicate your life to Christ. I hope that you will consider what I've said this morning and the significance of it, and do not allow the devil to continue to cause spiritual blindness in your life.